As we begin, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. You guessed it, the book of Romans. As you turn there, let me remind you uh, of this book's author, God, of this book's subject, Christ, and of this book's end, objective, glory. There was a preacher of yesteryear who declared, I remember it clearly, years ago declared that this book is a treasure which God has deposited into the hands of his people. I pray we approach it as such this Lord's day. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Romans 4. If you were here last Sunday, you will immediately think, well, I thought we were finished with verse verses 1 through 8. We are, but I want to read them by way of reminder and set the context for the verses we're going to look at and consider, namely verses 9 through 12. But for the sake of context, follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, I confess, that is a little convoluted, especially verses 9 through 12. What? What is Paul saying? Come on, man, straight to the point. Tell us. Easy on patience. Go with me, still in the book of Romans, all the way back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. And just by way of reminder, look at verse 18. When we reached this verse, I encouraged you to imagine we were standing in a courtroom and that we were on trial, all humanity on trial before God. And here the accusation is brought. We hear the accusation against us. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's the accusation. We stand before God, his judgment throne, and we hear it. All suppress the truth, including you. And yes, I know it, including me. 
As we move on from verse 18 and just flip over the pages and just glance through the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2, into chapter 3, all the way through to verse 8, we heard the testimony. And the testimony came from creation. And the testimony came from the Bible itself. And basically the testimony verifying, proving the accusation was simply this, all are without excuse. All have suppressed the truth. And whether we have the Bible or we don't have the Bible, we have all suppressed that truth. And we are all without excuse because we have willfully ignored the revelation that God has made available to us. We come to verse 9. Dreadful verses. Here we hear the verdict. All are under sin. And Paul says right there in verse 9, none is righteous. No, not one. There we hear the verdict as we stand before God's throne of judgment. There is not one individual, past, present, or who will ever live. There is not one individual who can stand here on the basis of his or her own righteousness. None is righteous. No, not one. We are sinful in the way we think. Verse 11, no one understands. We are sinful in terms of what we want. No one seeks for God. We are sinful in terms of what we choose. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are sinful in terms of what we say. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15, we are sinful in terms of what we do. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And finally, verse 18, we are sinful in terms of what we fear. What does Paul write there? There is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That, my friends, is the verdict. We are all under sin. We know the accusation, all suppress the truth. We've heard the testimony, all are without excuse. We've heard the verdict, all are under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we also know the accusation, or rather the sentence. We are now the objects of God's wrath. But stay with me. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3, the first two words, but now, but now. As we stand in that great tribunal, we hear the judge utter these words. Look, I am prepared to change the verdict. I'm prepared to do that. I am prepared to change the sentence. I am prepared to change the verdict. We all know the accusation. We've all heard the testimony. The proof is right there before us. You're all in stunned silence. No one can utter a defense. But here's what I'm prepared to do. I am prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I'm prepared to completely alter your legal status, your legal standing in my sight. And I am prepared to change the sentence from death to life. And here's how it is going to work. It will be by grace alone. It is going to be my gift to you, completely unmerited, completely undeserved. It will be through faith alone. Oh, please understand, you will not contribute anything to what I'm going to do. You can't contribute anything because you're under sin. 
And everything you do, everything you think, everything you ever say is tainted by sin. So the God, God, the judge is speaking, what could I possibly accept of yours? No, this will be through faith. You will simply receive it. And it will be in Christ, my son, whom I have displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. He bore the penalty for your sin. And you must be found in him. You must be found in his righteousness, in his obedience. And in Christ, I am prepared. In my beloved son, I am prepared to make you one with him. And making you one with him, therefore, as I look at him... I am prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent because he is innocent. And I am prepared to change the sentence from death to life. That, my friends, and you've heard it so many times now, if you've been here the past few Sundays, that, my friends, is the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me repeat it as James Packard describes it. This doctrine of justification, it is like that mythological figure, Atlas, who holds up the entire cosmos, the world. If Atlas were to shrug, the world comes tumbling down. If we lose the doctrine of justification, we are merely playing church. We might as well pack our bags and go home because there is no hope for us outside of Christ. The one who has been displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. The doctrine of justification. The trial has ended. That brings us to the end of chapter 3. The trial is over. Everyone makes a mad rush for the door. And there we are. We've stood there in stunned silence. Now we've heard this glorious gospel, this great news that the just shall live by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We exit. And out comes the Apostle Paul, who has, who has pontificated wonderfully and described this doctrine in, in such precise language and with such beauty that our hearts are thrilled. And out comes the Apostle Paul, and he begins to descend the steps in front of this great courthouse, this great tribunal. And as he descends the steps, this group of Jews, like a, a flood, like a wave, just rush over to him and circle him. And they say, Paul, you know, what you have just said, it sounds really good. This idea of justification, the change of the verdict from guilty to innocent and the change of the sentence from death to life, you know, I don't really have any problem with that. It sounds good. It sounds nice. Here is my difficulty. I'm just tripping over this, Paul, and you'll understand me as a Jew. Here is my difficulty. That isn't what our fathers believed. That isn't what our fathers believed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Aaron, David, Solomon, on and on and on. That's not, that's not what the big guys, when we look back in our beloved history, that's not what they believed. And that is not what our scriptures teach. Paul raises a hand, stop it right there, no more. Here's what I'm going to do, and here's what he does in the first eight verses of chapter four. He proves to them, he demonstrates to them, look, the exact opposite is true. What I have just said in the first three chapters, The doctrine of justification, as I have just described it, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are you ready for this? Let's call on two witnesses. The first witness, Abraham. This is exactly what Abraham believed. The second witness, David. This is exactly what David believed. 
I can prove it. In the case of Abraham, let's go back to Genesis 15, 6. He quotes it there in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. David, he believed exactly the same thing. You don't believe me? Let's turn to something he wrote. Psalm 32, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's what David celebrated. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Oh, my fellow countrymen, you are so confused. The depth of your confusion is startling because the two claims you are making, Paul, that's not what our fathers believed. Paul, that's not what our scriptures teach. The opposite is true. It is exactly what your fathers believe. And it is exactly what your scriptures teach. Therefore, you have departed from what your fathers believed. And you have departed from what your scriptures teach. And so there's this little exchange between Paul and this group of Jews. And Abraham is standing there, and David is standing there, and they're both nodding in agreement. Yeah, Paul's right. It's exactly it. Go back to Genesis, if you like. Go back to the book of Psalms. Yes, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abraham starts to walk away. We're using our imaginations, right? Paul says, hang on a second. Wait up a minute, Abraham. Come back. I'm not finished with these guys. They're standing there, kind of their mouths drop open. They just startled look, you know, that, that look of the deer caught in the headlights. There they are just standing around him. Abraham, just, David, you can actually go. But, but Abraham, I'm not finished with you. I've played defense in the first eight verses. I've played defense. Now I'm going to go on offense. I have defended the doctrine of justification by appealing to Abraham and David and appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. Now I'm going to go on offense and I'm going to attack what you guys actually believe. That's what he does in verses 9 through 12, those convoluted verses. What is it they believe? They have no problem with this idea of justification. No problem with the idea of changing the verdict from guilty to innocent. The question is this, how is it done? They are convinced it comes through what? Circumcision. The greatest work of the law circumcision standing for all of the works of the law. They believe, okay, God's going to change the verdict from guilty to innocent, but here is why he's going to do it. He is going to do it because I am a circumcised Jew. I belong to the nation of Israel, and I have done my best in upholding the law. And it is on that basis, for that reason, the verdict will change. Yes, God will be gracious to me on the basis of what I have done, that he will change this verdict from guilty to innocent. Paul goes on offense. He asks a question right there in verse 9. Is this blessing then, therefore, only for the circumcised, that is, Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? What blessing? It immediately follows from the preceding verses. Verse 7, blessed. And there's a threefold description of the blessed man. Number one, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The idea is removed from view. 
Blessed are those whose sins are covered, again, hidden from view. Verse 8, blessed, the third part of this description, is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. On what basis does the Lord forgive lawless deeds? On what basis does he cover sins? On what basis does he not count our sin against us? Back into verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God does count something. What? Righteousness. Apart from works. It is the righteousness of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this blessing then? This blessed man I have just described, this doctrine of justification that I've just articulated, is this only for the circumcised? This is the question. Does circumcision have anything to do with it? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? He provides an answer beginning in the middle of verse 9, and it goes to the middle of verse 11. We say, Abraham's still standing here. This is why I asked you to stay nice and close here, Abraham. I wasn't finished with you. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. I've just demonstrated that. I've quoted from Genesis 15, 6. We all know that. And you're Jews, you know your scriptures. You've heard it. Genesis 15, you've read it. You've probably got it memorized, but you have failed to understand it. Yes, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now reason with me. Work through it. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. There's the answer to your question. Here is Abraham. Let's hear it from Abraham. And my Jewish fellow countrymen, you know this is true. You know the scriptures. Abraham, when did God justify you? It's recorded in Genesis 15. Abraham, when did you receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant? Genesis 17. What's that you say, Abraham? Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Oh, how interesting. My fellow countrymen, you know your history. How many years had passed between Genesis 15 and 17, according to your reckoning? What's that? Speak up. 29 years. Then what is the answer to your query? It's stating the obvious, isn't it? If we just look at the timing of Abraham's circumcision, it is clear, it is self-evident that his circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with his justification. Because justification, justification by grace through faith in Christ, it predated, it preceded that act of circumcision. But he makes a second appeal. He not only appeals to the timing of Abraham's circumcision, he appeals to the function of Abraham's circumcision. And look closely at his wording in verse 11. He, that is Abraham, received what? The sign of circumcision. And so circumcision is a sign. What is it a sign of? The removal of physical flesh. Pointing to what? The need for the removal of fallen human nature. The flesh. 
corrupt human nature which is under, under sin. So that removal of physical flesh associated with propagation pointed to the need for something far more radical, something far more drastic, namely the removal of fallen human nature. It was a sign, an external sign pointing to an internal reality and the need for a new birth. Now, you know as well as I do, signs don't do anything. Let's say I want to drive to Austin, and for whatever reason, and I head east of here. I don't know what road I'm on, but I'm heading east because I know eventually I'm going to hit the 35, right? So I'm on some road heading east because I want to go to Austin. This is the way I've decided to go. Don't argue with me. That's the way I've decided to go. And uh, it isn't the way I would have gone, but it's the way we're going for the sake of this illustration. There we are heading east looking for the 35. We get close to the 35. And all of a sudden there's this big sign. And this sign says, Ramp North Dallas. Right? Well, I don't want to go there. Ramp South Austin. I slow down. I pull off the highway. I stop at the base of the sign. I say, all right, sign, do your stuff. You think I am? Well, you think I need my... Head checked, right? Come on, sign. Do, do, do something. Get me where I want to go. A sign doesn't do anything. A sign simply points us somewhere. A sign simply points to a far greater reality. That was the function of circumcision. It was a sign. It pointed to the need for inner renewal, a new birth. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at what he says in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Not only is it a sign, but as a seal. What does a seal do? It simply confirms something we already have. Look at what Paul says. As a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when... While he was still uncircumcised. And so the circumcision was given as a mark, as a seal of something Abraham already had. But the seal does not convey the reality. Most of us have graduated from school. Some of us from college. Most of us as adults, certainly from high school. I've got my high school diploma somewhere kicking around the home. If I were to pull out that high school diploma, what would I see? There would be my name, there would be a date, there would be the name of the principal, a few other people, and there would be the school seal on that diploma, right? Did that seal get me my graduation? Did that seal do anything to help me with my graduation? Suppose I started ninth grade, grade and, and, and I'd reason to myself, well, look, I want to get through high school, I want to graduate, so I'm going to sit around and, uh, and wait for a seal, I'm going to wait for a seal to give me my graduation from high school. It's an absurdity. A seal doesn't do anything. It does not convey the reality. And that is Paul's point here. Look at the function of circumcision. It is a sign. It points to the need for inner renewal. It is a seal. It testifies to the righteousness that Abraham already had by faith. And so my fellow countrymen, if you just listen to Abraham, and if you just take into consideration the relationship between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, and if you just understand the purpose of circumcision, you will see that Abraham's circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with his justification. And then Paul brings it all to a head in the rest of verse 11, 
into verse 12 with the implication or the conclusion, if you like. Look at the middle of verse 11. The purpose. And so Abraham's circumcision, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, that is Jews who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There's the conclusion. Abraham is the father of all who have faith. It does not matter if you are a Jew. It does not matter if you are a Gentile. As a matter of fact, circumcision is of no consequence at all. The issue is faith. That is why Abraham was circumcised when he was. Now we can understand. We can empathize just a little. Just a tiny bit with the Jews. Their confusion. Just a tiny bit. We can empathize why, for the following reason. After Abraham, all of his physical descendants were given the sign and given the seal, Jewish boys, right, prior to the reality, weren't they? You see, in Abraham's case, the sign and seal followed the reality. But in the case of all of his physical descendants, the sign and seal preceded the reality. And in the case of the Jewish nation, what does Paul declare? All are not Israel who are descended from Israel. Not all are the sons of Abraham who are actually descended from Abraham. But it is the children of promise who are the heirs. And so that sign, that seal pointed to the need for justification. It pointed to the need for regeneration. But the Jews fell into this idea. Well, no, it's the simple sign itself. Circumcision itself. If we are circumcised, part of the nation, under the works of the law, God will justify us. And Paul says, no, let's go right back to the start. Abraham, the first man. When was he circumcised? It was decades after his justification. I'm going to insert a thought here. And I risk offending someone in doing so, but I think it needs to be said. This is the one of the little issues I have with my Presbyterian friends. I, ha- I love Presbyterians, most of them. But this is a little issue I have with my Presbyterian friends. And a little issue I have with infant baptism. The merits of infant baptism aside, it's not my point. I'm not going down that road. We could go down that road some other time. My point is simply this, and my fear is simply this, that it's, it's on occasion, I'm not even saying most of the time, but certainly on occasion within circles, not merely Presbyterian, but within circles where infant baptism is practiced, what is also adopted is the notion of presumptive grace. Presumptive grace. What a danger that is to presume Because an individual bears the sign, baptism, because the individual has participated in the seal, that they also bear the reality, presumptive grace. We do it in Baptist circles as well. 
I have, I have seen it. I, it's something I'm glad we got, we've gotten away from here a little bit. I told you I was maybe going to offend somebody. But that whole practice of child dedication, uh, I'm glad we got away from it for a very simple reason. We never read of it in the Bible, but there you go. The practice of child dedication, if not rightly understood, I have, I have dialogued with people who have expressed this confusion that have viewed that ceremony that right, that mark, that sign as what? In and of itself conveying something to that child. My friends, a seal and a sign is merely a seal and a sign. It is not magical. It conveys no efficacy. It does nothing. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Jews fell into this great confusion whereby they took the sign itself and they viewed the sign as bearing intrinsic merit and they constructed upon it and they built upon it and it was completely mind-boggling to them that somehow salvation, justification could be detached from this sign in which they had invested some sort of efficacy, some sort of power. And that is what Paul is systematically abolishing in these verses. And he does it very simply. My fellow countrymen, just talk to Abraham and just go back to Genesis 15 and just find out and discover and reason with yourselves the timing of his circumcision and the function of his circumcision. Now, I hope you're sitting there. I hope you're sitting there asking yourself, wondering to yourself, now what does this possibly have to do uh, with us? I dare say, I submit to you, this has a great deal to do with us. It has a great deal to do with us for the following reason. Just like these Jews in this context, New Testament context, were confused over the significance of the sign circumcision, over the significance of this mark, we are inclined to do exactly the same thing. We are inclined, and sometimes we do this without even perceiving it. Sometimes we do this without really any, any awareness of what we're doing. But we are inclined, we kind of had this knee-jerk just response or reaction to turn a mark something visible, into the object of our faith. I want to introduce you to six individuals, six people I've met. I won't name them. Some of them I still interact with. We're going to take a little tour around the world and interact with these six individuals and these six examples, case studies, of professing believers who have actually turned a mark into the object of their faith. Here's individual number one. I referred to him last Sunday. We're going to call him Mr. Decision. Mr. Decision. Sometimes I go home after preaching. Actually, quite often I go home after preaching. I think back on what I said. And I'm like, well, did that, well, how clear was that? And I had that kind of nagging feeling last Sunday when I, talk about, when, I, when I spoke of decisionism and easy believism. And I want to go down that road just again. Last week I spoke of this, this meeting I had a long time ago with two other individuals. One individual who had, who had made a decision for Jesus 
when he was a teenager, something like that. He was now in his 40s. He had never darkened the door of a church, never become a disciple of Christ, never shown any interest in spiritual things. And another individual professing believer who was desperately trying to convince this other man that he was a Christian, trying to convince him he was a Christian, and trying to convince him why, his words, because I was there when you made the decision. That is turning a decision into a mark and making it the object of our faith. Jeremy Walker stated it so well. There are far too many, far too many professing Christians who believe in the memory of a moment rather than believing in Christ. Did you hear that? There are far too many professing believers who believe the real object of their faith is the memory of a moment rather than Christ. When I was in Brazil recently at a wonderful time on the Sunday morning in a Baptist church and uh, preached the gospel in this Baptist church, and I, I'm, I'm actually not against this. It might actually surprise you. I'm actually not against this. It depends. After I preached, the pastor of that preached, lovely man, lovely brother, gave an altar call. You may have wondered, why don't we do altar calls here at Grace Community Church? Well, th- this brother gave an altar call. I don't have a problem with that, really. Seven, eight people came forward. Here's my question. Actually, my question is twofold. And I asked him over lunch. My question is twofold. Those people who came forward, why are they told they are saved or not saved? What are they given as the reason for being saved? Second question is this. What happens now with these people? I was delighted with his, his response. His answer was simply, look, when they come forward, all we're doing is getting their phone number. When they come forward, all we're doing is getting their address. We contact them on Monday. And if there's no interest, there's no interest. We know where they stand. If there's an interest, they're in a discipleship class the next Sunday, which actually goes on for a year. This man knew which end was up. He was not placing any efficacy in the fact that somebody walked down the aisle or lifted their hand made a decision for Jesus. I have no problem making a decision for Jesus. We do have to make a decision. It is a decision. It is not the decision that saves us. The decision has no power. That moment we chose to do something, I lifted my hand, I filled in a car, I prayed with my mother. Well, because I've done that, God has justified me. That, my friends, is a false gospel. That is turning a mark into the object of our faith. The object of my faith is Jesus Christ and Christ's merit, and I rest upon his merit alone. Individual number two, Mr. Ordinance. Mr. Ordinance. Baptism, for example, great example. I was preaching years ago in North Bay, Ontario. North Bay, Ontario. If you're ever going to head further north, make sure you've got food, water, survival kit in the car because it's basically where civilization ends. Northern Ontario, North Bay, preached the gospel. At the end of the meeting, this couple, man and woman, came straight for me. They were from the southern states. They were from the Church of Christ. Now, I know not everyone in the Church of Christ believes this. I know not every church within the Church of Christ believes this. But it is a predominant view within many who are part of the Church of Christ. They came and they were, they were annoyed. They were rabid. They were rabid. Why? 
because I had dared to preach justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not added, you must now be baptized. And to make sure, not just baptized by anyone, but baptized in my church in order to be really saved. That is turning a good thing. Baptism. We ought to be baptized. We're commanded to be baptized. Baptism, a necessary step in discipleship and following the Lord Jesus. But we dare not turn a mark, baptism, into the object of our faith. Let me introduce you thirdly to Mr. Church. Mr. Church thinks he's justified saved because he is part of a church. And so we're offering the foundations course right now. And Lord willing, we'll receive new members here in a few weeks' time. Their membership in this church is not what saves them. Their belonging to this church is not what justifies them in God's sight. But the countless number, for example, of Roman Catholics I have met, whether it be in Angola or or in, in Brazil or in Portugal or back in Canada, even here in the States, the number of Roman Catholics I have interacted with who believe they are saved or define themselves as Christians simply why? Because I am Roman Catholic. I am part of that church. I was baptized in that church, sort of kind of catechized in that church, took first communion in that church. I hope to be married if I'm not already in that church, and I will be buried by someone in that church. I'm part of that church. There's no salvation outside of the church. Therefore, I am saved. That is turning a mark into the object of our faith. Let me introduce you fourthly to Mr. Experience. Mr. Experience. This is, this is Belgium years ago on a mission trip and met a young man and interacted with him. And this young man one night had been out by a lake and it was a beautiful evening, no wind, calm, not a ripple on the lake, sun setting on the horizon, just enough cloud to set off that pinkish hue. You know the one. There he was staring at the sky and he was not a professing believer. And he was in quiet reflection and meditation. And all of a sudden, he had an experience of ecstatic utterance. Since then, he had been looking for people who had had a similar experience. And he was looking for others who could share in this experience because he thought this is what now made him a Christian, an experience. For others, it's, a, it's, it's countless tears shed. For others, it's a deep sense of feeling or conviction, but whereby we turn an experience of yesteryear into the object of our faith, that because of that, that right there, that has made me a Christian, or that has justified me or guaranteed my acceptance in God's sight. Let me introduce you fifthly to Mr. Creed. A young man I grew up with, Don, I won't use his last name, but he was in a confessional church and a fairly solid church confessionally, but here was a young man who basically lived however he pleased. Here was a young man who did whatever he wanted, but he was in the pew in church on Sunday confessing and reciting the creed and appealing to the confession. And Don had this mentality, he had this understanding that as long as he was theologically orthodox, that as long as everything lined up doctrinally, as long as he was in the pew on the Sunday morning when he was supposed to be, and he was confessing with his lips what the church confessed to believe, lived however he pleased, did not walk with the Lord, but that simple confession, 
empty confession or acquiescence to a creed somehow guaranteed his salvation, made him a Christian. He had turned an external object, a mark, into the object of his faith. Here's number six. I'm going to use Mrs. this time because I've been picking on the guys. Here's Mrs. Lifestyle. Mrs. Lifestyle. And this woman perceives that there is something about her life, a course, a path she has chosen to take, a manner in which she has decided to live, things she has decided to refrain from that somehow will guarantee her salvation before the Lord. And I've shared it here with you before, and I will share it now because it's one of the most startling things I have ever heard out of anyone's lips years ago, going door to door, visiting the town I grew up in, and coming to this home and engaging with this woman, probably 80, perhaps 90 years of age. I mean, there she was standing in front of me, claiming to be a Christian, member of a church since she was five, six years of age. And I asked her that question, excuse me for being so bold, but you were to stand before the Lord this night and he were to say to you, why, you know, there it is, should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? Young man, I played the church, the piano in church for 30 years. He has to let me in. What do you say to that? Where do you go with that? And yet how prevalent that thinking is in our society. I've done this. I've lived like this. I haven't dabbled in that. My lifestyle. Oh, yes, it's all by grace. I thank the Lord. I'm not like that. It's all by grace. Uh, and, but my lifestyle is what will ultimately justify me in God's sight. Oh, we are inclined to that. We want something external, a mark that we will make the object of our faith. Why? Let me give you four reasons quickly. Reason number one, I want a mark so that I can live as I please. That's true. I want a mark, something like a decision. I can, I can just recall that I raised my hand or something like baptism. I want a mark that absolves me of everything, guarantees I'm in the door and now I can live as I please. Second reason is this. I want a mark so that I can be in control. We love to be in control. I want there to be something. I think this is part of the Jewish mindset. I want there to be something I do. And that if I do it, it means God is obligated to do his part. I want a bargain. I want some sort of contract. I want some sort of deal that if I just guarantee if I do that, well, I have upheld my end of the bargain. Now God is obligated to uphold his reason. Number three, I want a mark so that I can be different from others. I like being different from others. I like standing out from others and I want to be set apart from others in God's estimation. And here's the fourth and I think it is by far the most popular. I want a mark so that I can boast before God. Go all the way back to the first verse of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. That is what we want. We want something. We want, desperately want something we've done. Something we've participated in. Something that sets us apart, marks us apart, 
or sets us apart as distinct in the eyes of God, something we can boast in. Why I took the time to go back and read those verses in chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Sinful in what we think, there is none who understands. Sinful in what we choose, there is none who seeks after God. Sinful in what we, what we do or what we want, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, no, not one. Oh, but our insistence that there must be something. When it comes to this great transaction, my salvation, there must be something I bring somehow, somewhere, at some point. That's the deal. That makes the deal. Seals the deal. Something external. Something I can objectify and point to. That makes the difference in the sight of God. That's what compelled these Jews. It was their national heritage. It was their very ethnicity. It was this mark of circumcision and all that it included, the works of righteousness under the law. For us, it is undoubtedly very well could be something else. But something we have taken, a sign, a seal, a mark, and we have looked to that thing as the object of our faith, while all the while Paul is exhorting us to do what? My friend, look away from yourself. Look away from anything you think you've ever done. Look away from any good you think you have ever done in God's sight. Look away from any self-perceived righteousness you might have. Look away from every prayer you've ever offered, every tear you've ever cried, every ordinance you've ever enjoyed, every sermon you've ever heard, every act of service you've ever performed. Look away from it all. Because when it comes to the doctrine of justification, it has nothing to do with it. Justification is by grace alone. It is a gift without any cause in us. Nothing in us causes it. It is through faith alone, something we receive. And it is in Christ alone. I mean, think of just how ridiculous it is. Pitiful is perhaps a better word. Imagine this scene. I'm stuck in a raging inferno. My neighbor hears my cries for help. Risking life and limb, he enters through the flames, finds me, heaves me on top of his shoulder, and carries me to safety. There we are, the two of us on the front lawn, blackened by the smoke, singed by the flames, trying to gulp in the fresh air as we, as we try to catch our breath. I dig deep within my pocket, pull out a dollar bill, And I hand it to him. Give me 50 cents change and we'll call it even. That is absurd. Is that not absurd? That is exactly what we're doing whenever we think we bring anything to the table. That is exactly what we're doing. When we look at anything in us, anything we have done, anything we have said, anytime we objectify something in our experience, in our words, in our actions, and we pinpoint it, we set it aside, we say, aha, there's the reason why. That's what made the difference. That's what distinguishes me from the masses. And it becomes the object of our faith. And it is like handing God a dollar bill, asking for 50 cents in change, and then claiming, here we go. We are now 
even. Oh, remember the words of that great hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Oh, hear these words. Lord, I bring nothing. I don't bring my works of righteousness. What a joke that would be. I don't bring anything except my sin in need of forgiveness. I come in helplessness, looking to you for grace. I do not claim any merit of my own, but place my full confidence in Christ Jesus. Hear these words. Christ lived the life we were required to live. Christ died the death. We were condemned to die. God is satisfied with those who rest in Christ because God Almighty is satisfied with Christ. That is justification, my friends, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our Father, as we conclude this day, we seek illumination from you by your Spirit and ask you to take what has been proclaimed and impress it upon every heart. We look to you for understanding. We look to you for application. And we do praise the great name of the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and ask you to receive our praise and worship and thanksgiving as we offer it to you in his beloved name. Amen.